Agape, we have set our, our hearts this year to ask God, how do we become more effective in our purposes? How do we become people who are more effective at loving God, becoming worshipers of spirit and truth? How do we go deeper in loving one another as Christ has loved us? And how do we become more effective in making disciples, in teaching people how to follow Jesus? That as the purposes He's laid before us. And we want to know how do we do this better? How do we go deeper? And we have turned our attention to these letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches around the end of the first century. He wrote them through the Apostle John and collected them in a book called Revelation. And in these letters, Jesus describes each of his local congregations as a lampstand which should shine the light of his presence to whatever area he has placed them in. That is our charge that we are to shine light, illuminating the darkness where God has us. Last week, Josh Dean preached for us the first of these seven letters to Ephesus. It was an excellent message. If you missed it, let me encourage you, either on our website or through our church app, to go back and watch that sermon. But in that message, Josh pointed out something that I think is rather profound. He said that one of the mysteries of these seven letters is that each one probably applies to every believer and every church at some point in their life. That at some point you will find yourself and your church will find itself needing the exhortation that Jesus gave that particular church. So our aim, our goal is to hear each one of these. To hear, that's what Jesus says in every one of these letters. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him listen. And as Josh said last week, if, if you hear these letters and they mean nothing to you, cry out to Jesus that he would give you an ear to hear that it would mean something to you. And our aim is to hear each of these letters and the exhortation that Christ gives in them so that we might learn how we, individually and corporately as a church, burn brightly for Him as a light where He has placed us. So to that end, I'm going to aim every week to give you one word, a one-word theme to try and jog your memory and stir your heart toward each one of the letters so that when you think of that church and you think of that one-word theme, you would be reminded, oh yeah, this is what Jesus was saying. This is what He was exhorting us to in that particular letter. In every one of these exhortations, Jesus is communicating to us something that we need to overcome in order that we might receive the reward. For Ephesus, if you're a note-taker, if you have one of the handouts, 
The one word theme for Ephesus is remember. Remember. When you, when you see that one word theme, remember. I want it to jog your memory that we are to remember the love and the zeal that we had for God when we first came to faith in Christ. And what we are being told by Jesus to overcome is the coldness that can seep into our hearts through religious routine or even through growing theologically without the aim of love. As Josh pointed out last week, it is good to grow in truth in our knowledge of God in His Word as long as our aim is love. If we overcome coldness and apathy and routine by remembering the zeal that we once had for God, Jesus promises the reward of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Our one-word theme for Smyrna is stand. Stand. And we're going to unpack that a little more fully this morning. I think it's important to note that Smyrna, the church that is in the city of Smyrna, is one of only two of the seven churches to whom Jesus speaks no words of rebuke. He has nothing bad to say to Smyrna. He has nothing to correct them. No words of condemnation or rebuke. And there are only two churches in these seven letters that receive no words of rebuke or correction from Jesus. Smyrna is one of them. The other one is Philadelphia. And it is very interesting to note that Philadelphia is a church of little power and Smyrna is a church of little money. And yet they are the only two churches that Jesus had nothing bad to say to them. Compare that to Laodicea, a prosperous church, a church with great power and money in whom Jesus had nothing good to say. Jesus only rebuked Laodicea. He gave them no words of approval. That does not mean that every large church is in God's disapproval and every small church is in God's commendation, but it does mean that it is important for us to realize that God judges the success of a congregation far differently than we do. He judges what makes a successful church far differently than our culture does. Now, while the church of Smyrna was poor, the city of Smyrna was not. Josh said last week that Ephesus was second only to Rome in its commerce. Smyrna would have been next. It was a large and vibrant city, a population in the New Testament of almost 200,000 people. It was said of Smyrna in that day that it was the first city of Asia in both beauty and size. But the most important thing for us to understand about Smyrna today for our purposes relates back to what I told you in the introductory sermon to this series. 
And that is that one of the things the church was facing as Jesus gave these seven letters was that Rome was demanding emperor worship. Rome was demanding that their emperor be called God. And it had become under the emperor Domitian when John was writing the book of Revelation, it had become illegal to fail to worship the emperor as God. And Smyrna was at the heart of this. Smyrna had bid against ten other cities to be the city in which the temple to the emperor would be built. And Smyrna had won that right. And there in the city of Smyrna, in this live, vibrant, large city, a temple to the emperor was built, and Smyrna became the very center, the seat, the principal location of imperial worship throughout all of the Roman Empire. And to compound this issue, that this church in Smyrna was existing in the very heart of emperor worship, was that there was among this city a large population of people who called themselves Jews, who practiced Jewish religion. But Jesus says in this letter to Smyrna that they were not actually Jews. What he meant by that is probably the same as he dealt with in his earthly ministry, that they were Jews only by practice. They were not Jews in their heart because they didn't truly love God. They loved their religion and their religious routine, and they hated Christianity. They thought it was blasphemous, and they hated seeing people convert to Christianity, especially Jewish people. Now, the Jews in Smyrna had no ability to persecute the Christian church. They had no power. But they could, they could use Rome to do that. And so what apparently was happening in Smyrna was that this Jewish synagogue, incited, Jesus says, by Satan himself, lied against the church in Smyrna to the Romans. And in doing so, slandering this church, they made sure that this church was persecuted by the Romans for their failure to worship the emperor. And so many in Smyrna were imprisoned and many were put to death because of their refusal to worship the emperor of Rome and because of the lies told against them by the Jews in the city. The most famous martyr, mar, excuse me, the most famous martyr in Smyrna was the elderly Polycarp, a pastor, a bishop over the church, and we just heard his story of what happened to him because of his refusal to simply say, Caesar is Lord. It is an understatement to say it was incredibly difficult to be a Christian in Smyrna. It was incredibly difficult in the face of active persecution to even make a living 
and people who could make a living and could collect possessions were finding their possessions plundered and taken from them by their oppressors, which is a lot of what the Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians were facing in the book of, in the letter of Hebrews years earlier. So this led the church of Smyrna to material poverty. And that is what they're facing. Poverty, lies, persecution. And so what is the message of Jesus to his church there? When Jesus directs John to give Smyrna one of these letters, and remember, there are many churches in that day, but Jesus chose seven to receive a letter. And what is his message to Smyrna? He tells them that he knows that they have suffered much for him. And he tells them that in a physical sense, it is going to get worse. He tells them that Satan is going to be allowed to test some of them with even further tribulation. And it will be for a limited amount of time. The ten days that's mentioned in the letter probably wasn't literal, but it was a reminder to them that God set the parameters for how long they could be tested. But if they would stand firm, if they would not back down, if they would remain faithful to Him, no matter what it costs them, they would be rewarded with a crown. And the word used there by Jesus for crown was the same word that was used to describe a prize that was given to the victor of a competitive contest. And that crown was life itself. Because none of the church of Smyrna who remained faithful, none of them would be touched by what Jesus called the second death. The second death being that time where God judges the world. And He judges the sin of the world. The greatest tribulation the people of the world will ever face. And Jesus says, that judgment will not touch you. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. So this is a heavy letter. This is a sobering letter. What can you and I, living in 2022, some 2,000 years after this letter to Smyrna was written, what can us, what can we as Agape Church, what can we learn from Smyrna? How do we take what Jesus is saying and how do we apply it to our lives? And I want to give you this morning two life truths from this text. Pondering how we can learn from this church how to burn brightly 
in the time period God has placed us and in the area that He has placed us, how do we burn brightly for Him? Two life truths from this text that I hope will help us to do that. Life truth number one, what we learn from Smyrna. Jesus is sovereign over every trial and He gives help equal to every circumstance you face, you who are in Christ. Jesus is sovereign over every trial and He gives help equal to every circumstance that you face. It is beyond sobering to listen to what happened to Polycarp. Almost unbelievable. And countless other people that we don't know their names and what they suffered in Smyrna. And I think if we are honest, we would likely read this and think a couple of things. One, God, I don't ever want to face something that way. And secondly, if I were to face something like that, could I do what they did? Could I endure to the end? Could I keep from saying a simple phrase that someone offers me that will give me freedom and keep me from death? At least that's what I think when I read it. But I want to submit to you something this morning. And that is that Polycarp, Polycarp was only able to overcome what he faced because Jesus helped him to do so. I want to submit to you that the church of Smyrna was only able to overcome what they were going through because Jesus gave them the grace that they needed to overcome. And I want to submit to you this morning that Jesus did not, does not give us grace for trials we are not facing. He gives us the help for the ones that we do. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells His disciples a sobering prophetic word. He tells them that there is going to come a day when they are going to be dragged before governing authorities and rulers because of their loyalty to Him. He says, that is going to happen to you. And it happened to every one of the apostles. And then He tells them, don't worry now about what you will say then. Because in that hour... I will give you the words you need. Because see, that, that, would, that would immediately be the thought. Well, what am I going to do when that happens? If I get drugged before the authorities, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? I, I've got to figure this out. What is going to happen to me? And Jesus says, don't worry about that now. Because it's not happening now. I'm not giving you the grace for it now. I will give you the grace when it happens. I will tell you what you need to know when it happens. 
You and I right now in central Alabama are not facing the type of cultural persecution Smyrna was dealing with. Maybe one day we will. Maybe we never will. But here's the reality. Paul told Timothy, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted somehow, some way. None of us are free from tribulation. None of us are free from trials. And some of the trials that we face and some of the tribulations that we face are sourced in our own sin. Some of them are sourced in spiritual attack. Some of them are sourced in living in a fallen world. But none of us get to live a trial-free life. The problem with theology and churches that do not teach that the problem with churches that say, if you live rightly and have enough faith, it is never God's will for you to face trials. The problem with that is, one, it's not biblical. And two, when you teach people that and they go into trials, they lose their faith. And they say, well, what have I done wrong that I'm facing this? Or where is God that I'm facing this? It ignores the reality that Jesus said, if you, if you really want to live a godly life, you're going to face problems. Charles Spurgeon, when he commented on Psalm 91, the great psalm that promises the protection of God for His people, Charles Spurgeon remarks that God delivers His people that are endangered by the snare of the fowler, which is what it says in Psalm 91. He delivers His people that are endangered by the snare of the fowler or the trap of the trapper in two senses, from it and out of it. Sometimes God will deliver you from trials by never letting you enter them to begin with. And you will never even know that He kept you from it this side of heaven. Sometimes you will get caught in the snare and He will deliver you out of it. And God always has a reason for both. Jesus describes Himself to Smyrna by saying that He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, a reminder that He is completely sovereign. Because perhaps they were doubting that. Perhaps they were wondering where Jesus was, where was His power, and why was He not keeping them from this trial. And so He goes to them and immediately says, I am the first and the last. And I know that you are facing slander and persecution and poverty. I know you're poor in many senses, but Smyrna, you are spiritually rich. You are spiritually rich because you have my help. I want to remind you one of the three key ideas for this series that I gave you in the first sermon 
was that Jesus rewards humility with His personal reassurance and favor. He rewards our humility with His personal reassurance and favor. Humility is looking to Jesus for help in your trouble. Humility is running to Christ and relying on Him whatever tribulation you are facing. Humility is not placing your hope in your ability to muscle your way out of whatever problem you're going through. Humility is looking to Jesus and saying, I need you. It is not my anger that's going to save me. It is not my intuition that is going to save me. It is not my strength. It is not my life experience. It is not my way of doing things. Only you can deliver me. And Jesus rewards those who look to Him and say that. So the lesson from Smyrna is not see Smyrna, see Polycarp, be more like them. The lesson from Smyrna is stay close to Jesus and rely on Him to deliver you from and out of every tribulation that you face, believing that He will give you whatever help you need. He will give you the help that is sufficient for whatever trial you're facing. Which leads us to life truth number two. Life truth number one, He is sovereign and He gives help equal to every circumstance we face. Life truth number two, Christians, in light of this, should daily practice the faithfulness that results in death. Knowing that Jesus is sovereign over every difficulty and knowing that He will always give us whatever help we need and whatever we're facing... You and I should make it our daily aim to practice the faithfulness that results in death. What does that mean? Be faithful unto death are the words of Christ to Smyrna. Be faithful unto death is the word of Jesus to Agape and to all of us who are Christians. I do not know anyone in this room will ever face the plundering of your possessions or the loss of your job because of your faith in Jesus. Jesus. Maybe some of you have faced that. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. I do not know if anyone in this room will ever face the threat of physical death because of their faith in Jesus. But here's what I do know. I do know that Jesus said in Matthew 16 that anyone who follows after Him should count the cost and be ready to pick up their cross. What does it mean to be ready to pick up your own cross and follow after Jesus? He was saying, be ready to die. And I submit to you that if we only focus 
on whether or not we would ever be asked to physically die for our belief in Jesus, we are missing the call that we have every single day to be faithful and die to ourselves that we might live for Jesus. Because every one of us who are believers, that's the call that we have. We record a podcast here uh, almost weekly. And the purpose of it is to try and give those who want to listen encouragement in God's Word in between Sunday gatherings and small group gatherings. And you can find those on our website or in the church app now if you want to listen to them. But a few weeks ago, I recorded one called The Cost of Being a Christian. And in it, I made the case that every day of our life, a true believer experiences the reality that it costs you something to follow Jesus. You might not see that readily or even embrace it, but if you're really looking at your life every single day, it will cost you something if you want to follow Jesus. No one can escape that who wants to follow Christ And no one should want to escape that who wants to follow Christ. So what do I mean by it cost you something? Every time you set your heart to obey Jesus, it means death to some desire of your flesh. Because the Spirit of God that is in a believer wars against the flesh that we all wrestle with. So, a daily giving up of the right to decide how you spend your resources is a way of being faithful unto death. Denying yourself some sensual pleasure that you long for but is wrong according to the Bible is a way of being faithful unto death. Forgiving someone who has hurt you and seeking to be reconciled with them when you do not want to do that is a way of being faithful unto death. Being faithful to godliness will always mean a death blow to carnality. And it's a good thing. So church, when I say Christians should daily practice the faithfulness that results in death, I am saying that we should practice faithfulness to God that results in the death of our flesh. And we should seek to do that willfully and joyfully. It may be as simple as serving someone in your home in a way that you, you really don't want to and don't think is really fair. But you do it to be like Jesus. And you give a death blow to your flesh. Know that every time you give up your right, your right to think, speak, act, or respond however you wish in favor of how Jesus has taught you to think and act and respond, you are worshiping Christ. The same as singing or raising your hands or praying or reading Scripture. Every time... You deny yourself to follow Jesus in what He has said, that is worship. 
and His presence is burning brighter inside of you. That is how we are faithful unto death. That is the faithfulness that we should be focused on. Jesus will give us the grace for whatever comes. Live today being faithful in what He has asked you to do. Giving your flesh a death blow in the process. I said that the word stand is our theme for Smyrna. Christ is exhorting us to stand faithful despite the cost. Rely on Jesus. It's not going to be easy. It's okay to pray, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to forgive this person. I don't want to serve this person. God, I don't want to turn my back on this sin. God, this is not how I want to act. This is not how I want to react. Help me. We probably need to pray a thousand of those prayers a day. And Jesus promises to give us the help we need when we do. Whatever we're facing. We stand, we overcome, we overcome, and we do that to be crowned a faithful servant. That's what we want. The heart of a believer. Listen, listen, please. Are you in the faith? Do you belong to Christ? Are you in a healthy place in your relationship with Him? Ask this diagnostic question. Do I desire to please God, even if it costs me? If you can say, yes, even though it's hard, I want to please God, even if it costs me, it's a good sign that you're in the faith. If you can't say yes to that, It is a sign to run to Christ. When we overcome our flesh so that we can receive the reward, that reward is abundant life, both now and in eternity. That word stand in our first reading this morning that that Laurie did, Paul told the church in Corinth that they were standing firm in the gospel. I got to thinking this week about what that means. And this picture came to me that, at least in part, to stand firm in the gospel means that we have to live out the nature of the gospel. Well, what is the nature of the gospel? Two words I want to give you this morning to describe the nature of the gospel. Mercy and truth. Mercy and truth are ways to describe the nature of the gospel. The cross displays both. That symbol of our faith displays mercy and truth. The truth that it displays is that every single one of us have wronged God by rebelling against what He says is right. No one escapes that reality. We are not judged comparing ourselves to others. We are judged comparing ourselves to God, and we've all rebelled against Him. But what we also see at the cross 
is mercy of the death of Jesus to remove our guilt from us. The truth is we're sinners. The mercy is Jesus offers us forgiveness for our guilt if we will ask Him to save us. So standing firm in the gospel means that we have to uphold the nature of the gospel. That means sometimes you are going to have to show mercy where you do not want to. You can't just be a truth person and not a person of mercy. You have to love mercy because you're living in mercy as a believer. But church, sometimes you're going to have to stand for truth. You're going to have to agree with what God says is sin, even when your flesh or the culture around you demands that you approve of what they're doing. The truth is, we probably lean one way or the other. Some of us, truth is easy. Mercy's hard. Some of us, mercy's easy. Standing for truth is hard. Standing in the gospel is being faithful to both. Being faithful and dying to yourself by showing someone mercy that you don't want to. Being faithful and dying to yourself by being willing to risk ridicule or shame in order to say, I stand with what God says is right. Agape, we are called to stand in mercy and truth. Faithful. Faithful no matter what it costs us. Faithful unto death of our flesh. I want to ask the worship team if they'll come up. And as I do that, I'm going to, I'm going to ask everyone, if you're, if you are not on the worship team, if you can, please stay seated where you are because I want us to, I want us to have a time of prayer before we sing together. And I, I want to, I want us to, to take this time of prayer very seriously. You guys, you can bring all the lights down, Chris. Thank you. I want to give you two prayer focuses this morning as the worship team begins to play, to, to play. And I'm going to give you some time to pray these two prayer focuses where you are. Uh, now I say where you are. I, I just want us to pray. I want us to pray as a church. I want us to pray together. So, I'm encouraging you to take this time seriously. We're not just wrapping up the service. But I don't want to tell you what that prayer should look like. Maybe you want to come to the front and pray. Maybe you want to kneel and pray. Maybe you just want to pray seated. Maybe you want to gather your family up to pray with them. I just want to encourage you however God leads to pray. I'm going to give you two prayer focuses and I'm going to step back and pray with you. And, and even though they're on stage, the worship team's going to pray along with us as well. And I want to ask you to cry out to God in prayer, responding to His Word. Father, please give us ears to hear. First of all, we're going to take a few seconds, couple of minutes... And I want us to pray for people who do not have a relationship with Christ.
Those words from Jesus to the church of Smyrna is overcome by faithfulness and you won't face the second death. Listen, death is the last great enemy that we all face in this life. But there is a far scarier death that comes for those who are in Christ, they will never face that second death. But for those who don't know Jesus and who don't have His mercy, their guilt for their sin remains on them. And they will face a second death for all of eternity. It leads us to two things. One, are you in Christ? I'm not asking if you're religious or if your family is religious or if you go to church or if you know some of the Bible or if you own a Bible. I'm not even asking you if you believe facts about Jesus. I am asking you, have you cried out to Him to give you mercy for your sins? And if you never have, I believe He has placed you here today or on this replay that you might do that. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you can believe that, do it. If, that, if those words mean nothing to you, beg God to make them mean something to you. Ask Him if He will show you He's real and to make Christ real to your heart. If you are in Christ, you likely know many who are not. So would you take some time this morning to pray for those who God brings to your mind and cry out to them that He would save them from the second death. However He leads you to pray, let's take a couple of minutes and let's pray for our lives and for those around us for salvation. You remain in that posture of prayer. I also want to put before us a second prayer focus. And it is our prayer focus for this upcoming week. It's in your worship guide. And I hope we will pray this together in the, throughout the next seven days until the Lord bring us back, brings us back together again. Would you pray that the character of this church and the people in it would be a willingness to be faithful unto death, particularly willing more and more and more to die to ourselves that we might please God? We can only do that with His help. So let us ask Him to help us with that. Pray that we would be a people willing to put to death our flesh that we might please Him. Invite if you're praying to continue to pray, but we have some prayer partners I've asked this morning if they would come.
as we sing this song together in worship. I believe we're going to be singing Run to the Father. Let that be the cry of your heart this morning. Run to Christ. Run toward Him. If you need prayer for anything, something that has been stirred in your heart by what we've talked about today, or something that we've not, healing, whatever it may be, sometimes it's good to just share your need with someone and let them pray with you. Sometimes that is so helpful. So take advantage of that grace, if you will, this morning. I want to invite you to worship. I want to invite you to respond to God. Continue to pray. Sing to Him. And let me give you one final plea. If He has spoken to you this morning in a significant way about your life in Jesus, please do not leave here without making that known. Simply come up to me during this song or right after the service and just just let me know. You know. I think God was saying something to me today about my relationship with Him. I'm not going to bring you in front of anybody. I'm not going to embarrass you. We'll just make a time to talk this week. You don't even have to know exactly what He's saying. It's just a step forward. So please take advantage of that. Assume a posture of worship and prayer. And if that would include for you this morning standing and singing, please do so. Let us cry out to God together.